0: Hey everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelins and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I am so fired up tonight because not only do I have my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink, back with me on tonight, but we are also joined by one of our favorite commentators, also a Hall of Famer. It is an absolute privilege for me to have this guest with us on tonight. Please welcome to the pod, Mary Carrillo. Mary, this is a privilege. Thank uh, you so much. Hey, that. I'm I'm very happy to be here with you too. So, uh, you know, it's been, I don't know, what are we going on? 13 months of all this craziness with the pandemic. We're starting to come out of it. The vaccines are out. You, your family, I know you have parents that are, are still doing well. Everyone doing okay with all this?
1: I've been very lucky. I really have. My parents are good. My son is good. My daughter last year gave me a pandemic granddaughter. Uh, baby Raya now is 14 months old and she's magnificent and brilliant. Uh, greatest baby of all time. So I will remember 2020 a lot differently from uh, a lot of my friends and colleagues, that's for sure. For me, uh, it was a blessing to become a grandmother.
0: Well, congratulations. Thanks. And We're going to get into all the great commentating stuff uh, uh, later, but not everybody knows um, that you yourself are actually a grand slam champion (laughs) and we'll go back 1977 with a guy you grew up with decent tennis player himself. Yes. Donnie Mack. What was it like carrying him to to the (laughs) French open mixed doubles title?
1: It was a lot of luggage. I I just, (laughs) I I just, it's all coming back to me. (laughs) Um, You know what? It was a, a, it was a great time uh, because uh, John was only 18 years old. He was there to play junior French and uh, I was a rookie pro and we signed up at a time in 1977 a lot of a lot of the best players weren't there to tell you the truth they were playing world team tennis which meant they weren't allowed to play at Roland Garros so we got into the mixed and I mean we'd been playing and uh, together and growing up together and arguing for our almost our entire lives so <laughs> but that, the hell of it is he was he is a a magnificent player he was when he was 18 he just got it and People don't think he's maybe a great, great clay court player because he never won the singles at Roland Garros, but we grew up on clay. There are three clay courts at the Douglas and club and two hard courts. And I mean, John, John could play on anything. So yes, it was the, it was, it was a, um, it's a longstanding joke on my side that it was um, John McEnroe's first ever Grand Slam title and, and my last. That's, <laughs> uh, no, that's that's just how that went. But I I, I wonder, Steve Flink, when you first laid eyes on John McEnroe? Was it a couple of weeks later at Wimbledon '77? It
2: was, it was absolutely. I saw him make that great run to the semis and take a set up of O'Connor's, and it's pretty astounding. But Mary, before we get away from you here, I, a lot of the a lot of the listeners probably don't realize this was a great lefty combination because yeah. you were left hander, and I don't. I, most of your fans know you as a broadcaster and many of them never saw you play. So that talk about that component of, of, of you and John as two lefties and how you decided who was gonna be in the deuce court or the ad court and how confounding that might've been for your opponents.
1: Um, well, John was confounding to our opponents. And <laughs> the whole point, Steve, that are basically right from the start of the fortnight, the plan was John was gonna take everything possible <laughs> I, mean, I I in my defense, I actually had pretty good hands at the net, so I was I was pretty good up there, um, but that's about it. I mean, John pretty much. I was really choking in the last couple of rounds when it became when we became aware of the fact that we might actually win the thing. I was getting very tight, and uh, and John wasn't. Uh, John, you know, just he genuinely, honestly, when we signed up for the mix. He looked at the draw, he looked at the, I'm, I'm sorry, he looked at the players, the teams and said, well, we should win this thing. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? What do you mean we're going to win this thing? It was the first major for either one of us. And John had it in his head that that we can win it. But I I mean, I, I really wasn't that good. I could not have played in the 80s or 90s or certainly now with my game. Because I was a lefty, but I wasn't, a, I didn't have a real lefty serve. You know what I mean? I didn't have a, I wasn't the kind of lefty John was. I was more like the, you know, some, some people are leftier than others, you know? Martina was a lefty, John was a lefty, Velas, uh, I think. I don't think Jimmy Connors was a lefty. When you think of Jimmy, do you think, oh God, that guy was a real lefty? I don't think of him that way, do you?
2: No, not at all. Not, not at, all, at but, all,
1: right?
2: Not at all, but you, you know, Mary, only a few weeks later you brought up about when I first saw John play, it was also when I first saw you play because you came to Wimbledon and you took Carrie Melville Reed, the number eight seed to seven, five in the third could have and- changed history. If you'd won that <laughs> match you might have broadcast. That's but right. She that, was- Mary, you know what I remember about that? The exuberance. You yes. had so much fun out there. And I did. You- I you couldn't believe I was there. <laughs> Where somebody who emoted, not in anger, but in joy, would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, no, I was thrilled to be there. You know, I, it, it's funny. When I was growing up, you know, I I was, attending with John and Vetus Gerolaitis and his sister, Ruta, who was my best friend. We were attending the Port Washington Tennis Academy, which was a, a tremendous place. I mean, normally if you wanted to take tennis seriously as a junior in the US when I was growing up, you had to be on the clay courts of Florida or the hard courts of California. Te- actually, Texas was a, pretty, was a pretty great tennis state back when I was a kid. So the fact that New York all of a sudden had this magnificent academy with these great teaching pros, was, was something special. I mean, so I was lucky to, to be around that kind of an atmosphere and, and be around all that good training.
0: Um, you know what? Was, you're, you're a Grand Slam champion. Not many people can say that. So well, yeah, you're selling I, yourself short. With-
1: I'm not, David, because honestly, my when there was a, the, the famous uh, Wimbledon boycott of 1973, a lot of the top male players didn't play. So Vitas Gerolitis got in. This guy I've known, you know, my whole my whole junior career, a, a friend of mine is playing at Wimbledon, and I that blew my mind, and that became my goal. Is boy, if I could just make it to Wimbledon, I never had any aspirations to go deep at Wimbledon or win it. So that 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 match that Steve is talking about in '77 against Carrie Melville Reed, who was a seed and she was a good grass court player, you know, what? she had it. She had a she had a very good net game and she, her ground game got her in. She had nice tight volleys. Um, it was a thrill to honestly. It was a thrill to be there. And I played there two more times, and uh, I never got that far. Once we, the year seventy seven, when John got to the semis as a qualifier, um, he and I we had won the French, and now we're playing the mix at Wimbledon because what the hell, right? And John headed in and said we could win that one too. <laughs> <laughs> We, <laughs> John got to the semis, loses in four to Connors. And then he had, we had to play our mixed doubles match. Do you think John McEnroe felt like playing a mixed doubles yeah. match? Uh, and our buddy Vitas Garolatis was playing Bjorn Borg on center court. And so we were missing that match. We were over on court two. We were playing Dennis Ralston and Martina Navratilova. And we went 10, we lost 10 8 in the third them listening to Vitas playing five against bjorn so anyway during that summer so after wimbledon all right we lose in the quarters of wimby nice little run and then over the summer we're hanging out we're arguing we're <laughs> we, we play the us open lose first round and that was it <laughs> and not and john basically claimed my mixed doubles career is over but then i think the next year he played with his then girlfriend Stacy Margolin, and they lost early. So then he said, "That forget it. That's it." But at Wimbledon, he signed up to play with Steffi Graf. Do you remember this, Steve?
2: Oh, very well, because that was but, the year when he went in the Hall of Fame that year. That is absolutely correct. So here's the data. Let me let I, me I, I, s- tell the story, Mary, about that. Uh, <laughs> That, that, John was not very happy with Steffi. Right. <laughs> I
0: remember that. I remember. You
2: remember
1: this too? Well, yeah. I'll tell you what I remember about it, guys. John signs up to play mix with Steffi Groff, right? And Steffi had been carrying like an injury or two, whatever. Anyway, Martina and I, Martina Navratilova and I saw John and and said, you signed, you're you're playing mix with Groff? And John said, yeah, man, it's going to be great. And I said, <laughs> You know, if she goes deep in the singles, she's going to bail. Yep. No freaking way she would do that to me. And Martino, God damn it, that, that could easily—you know—Martino agreed with me. <laughs> sure enough, sure, sure enough, they go deep. Steffi's, i think it was her leg that was bugging her or whatever. John, yeah, and I'm John and I are working together at NBC. He comes off of a he comes off of a, a senior match or whatever. He comes in, and he hasn't heard yet that Steffi oh. has yanked and this sounds terrible, but I wanted to be around when John found out because <laughs> <laughs> I had called it, you know, um, and boy, he was upset because they had gotten to the semis of the mix and they were a huge hit. I mean, Steffi was enjoying herself and she was listening to John and John was totally digging it. And you know how big a story and a, and a, I mean, England loves watching John McEnroe. They were like watching him talk, walk, play. They were playing great. They could have won the mixed double title. But as it stands now, the only major he's ever won in mixes with, you know who.
0: Let's go. Let's go.
2: <laughs> no, I just still uh, remember. Barry, I still remember him talking about it in Newport. He was still. He, he was, was still, still aggravated. In his system, yeah, he was still aggravated, right? Yeah.
1: Well, he could have won. I mean, he could yeah. look. Peter, Peter, Peter uh, his longtime Dolphs partner, Peter Fleming, had it right many, many years ago. And he said, John McEnroe and anybody is the yeah. best doubles team in the world. I mean, that's how, that's, that's how talented he is. But I got to ask you one more question about John the first time you saw him, Steve. Could you, tell, could you tell who he was going to be even then, even when he was 18?
2: You know, I have to admit, I, I, I saw Becker at 15 and I was more convinced.
1: Wow, oh, because- interesting
2: on the juniors. And i it wasn't that I didn't think John was great, but I wanted to see a little more. Yeah. I, I just wanted a, a, an, another major or two. And by the... by, It, it didn't take me long to, to come around. And by 79, I was, I was convinced. Uh, but no, I, I just thought it was a great run and he was going to be a great player. But if, if I wasn't ready to give him all those majors yet, I wasn't ready to make him world number one. I just thought the potential was there.
1: Well, soon after... I know, I know you guys probably know this, but soon after he played Davis Cup and they played against England out in California in the final. And Rod Laver was there because Rod was already living there and he was there to watch this thing. And I'll never forget that somebody was comparing McEnroe to Laver, the leftiness and the cleverness and all that stuff. And Rod Laver, who John and I grew up idolizing, this is the greatest player of all time. Rod Laver said, it's an honor to be compared to him. Ron Weber said that about John, David, about John. Yeah,
2: that that was music to his ears, and why wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely right.
0: Unbelievable. So, yeah, I mean, you you grew up with Johnny Mac. You saw Jimmy and Bjorn, right? I grew up. We all saw. I grew up with what is really the greatest generation of American tennis with Andre and Jim, Michael and Pete. By the way, Steve's most recent project, Pete Sampras' greatness revisited. Awesome, great book. book. Great book. Go get it. Great, great book. Um, you know, after Pete won his 14th slam, maybe sometime in the future, someone would could break that record. Now, who in their right mind would think not one, not two, but, you know, three guys in the same generation absolutely blow that record away. I mean, no one saw that. You saw Roger just starting and Pete was kind of, you know, yeah. as Pete was retiring. Rafa and Novak really weren't there yet. Um, it's just crazy that, that 14 slams looks like uh, junior varsity compared to these guys.
1: <laughs> well, I don't think Pete saw, I think Pete thought that there was a real mic drop moment when he won the US Open for his final major and walked away. How many people walk away like that, right? Um, it's astonishing what we've been living through. It's astonishing that these three players in modern in our time are so great and have divvied up the majors so closely together. I mean, that's, that's the remarkable thing for me is that they just keep, they just keep cranking. I'd I'd be a little surprised. I don't know how you guys feel if Roger can pull off another major. I think if he stays at 20, that's amazing and remarkable. And I don't think Pete or any of us saw that coming, but I got to think that, that, both Rafa and Novak are going to pass that. But yeah, I I agree with you, David. I thought that Pete, what Pete, how I loved how he played anyway. I love how he comported himself. Um, I thought that was going to, I thought that was going to be a pretty safe number for a long time.
0: For a while. Uh, You know, it's funny, Steve and I, Steve, Steve and I have talked about this. If you look at any industry, sports, outside of sports, any industry you pick the fourth, fifth, and sixth best person is pretty damn good right right and right. for a long time in tennis these big the big three rafa roger and novak there was such a wide disparity yeah. right now the the fourth fifth and 6th they they're coming up they're they're getting closer but for a while there the fourth fifth and sixth, there was such a wide disparity from the top three guys and that just that shouldn't be if you're fourth fifth and sixth, and whatever it is <laughs> you do that's pretty frigging good <laughs> But at a time when uh
1: so many uh journalists and fans only use the majors you know as as the as the judging point um it's just been those those three guys have been clogging it up for a long time look i'm surprised what Vavrinka was 29 when he first won his first steve i mean that, yeah. i didn't see that coming frankly Oh,
2: no, i didn't uh, but but Mary, not only that, did you also see it coming that and he, he, he beats an admittedly injured Rafa to win the Australian, but still a big win. Yeah. Then he beat Novak the following year in 2015 in the French final. And then the year after that, he beats Novak again in the U.S. Open final. Yeah. For, for Stan to beat those t- two wins over Novak in Grand Slam finals, one over Rafa. Who would have believed that? Right.
0: And,
1: and that he's never lost a major final. Right. No. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he's three for three.
0: I, mean, I don't the, think... um, the only thing I would I would compare it to as far as the disparity from the top of the top to the rest of the field is is Chrissy and Martina back yeah. in the day. Right. Yeah. I mean, they were getting to the semis and finals of every every slam. And they played
1: so much. They really supported the tour. Uh, yeah. And that that just doesn't happen anymore on either side, does it? You know, I mean, everyone has pulled way back and everyone concentrates on the majors, everyone's entire season is designed around the majors and chrissy and Martina weren't doing that they were they were being asked to play they played they played against each other 80 times i mean i don't know those days
0: are over
1: (laughs) those days are over yeah
0: yeah and then you got you got a guy who uh, the dominance at roland garrett's is just absolutely ridiculous Uh, rafael nadal's record is 100 wins and two losses it's the fourth time he's won the French open without losing a set. Right. I mean, 21 right. sets to, to the good, to yeah. zero sets lost. That's just absolutely ridiculous. 13 French opens. Um, you cover more than just tennis. Um, there are some crazy Olympic records. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we went out on Twitter a while ago, Steve and I, we were asking for, uh, you know, is there anything quite comparable? I think Edwin Moses had a crazy yeah. um, record in track. There's Michael Phelps. Um, is there anything that, that can remotely compare to, to, to Rafa's dominance on clay?
1: I don't think so. I'll say that right out front. I do also say, you know, as amazed as I was by teenage Rafa Nadal, I've I was never more impressed with him than I was last fall when the French Open was played and he went he went again without dropping a set. That to me was astounding. The guy hadn't played in months, and you know, he, he it didn't it didn't seem to matter he beat Djokovic so quickly so easily and eight months after that he gets to go for <laughs> another one but I, you know it's funny that it's hard to compare you know different times in this sport but it's also like someone like Michael Phelps and I've been lucky enough to cover to be at the many Olympics that he's where he's taken the gold there's so many events that he play, that he could swim in, you know what I mean. He can, he can swim in freestyle. He can free in back he can swim in the IM. He can swim in, you know, the the relays. So there are more medals to be had by some athletes, like Michael Phelps, at an Olympics, than there are for so many other Olympians. You know, uh, so medal counts are, to me, that it's not necessarily the way to judge. But the I, I don't know that anyone will ever think of. Of someone mastering a surface in tennis, the way Rafa has on clay. And I remember when he won his 12th. I was I was I was working for NBC, and I was sitting next to John McEnroe. And I and John speaks so lovingly of Bjorn Borg. I mean, they they truly are friends and and admirers of one another. And I said, your guy Bjorn, he was thought of as the best clay court player of all time. Rafa's now won twice as many. <laughs> Let's sit back and think about
0: that. It's unbelievable.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: The scary thing, Mary, is that I I just don't see how he doesn't win at least one of the next two, and probably both. Yeah, my guess is he ends up with fifteen. I do too.
1: I think that, and and I still think he can win himself another U.S. Open. You know, Uh, he's that he's only won one Australian Open is that's that's kind of crazy to me.
2: Um, Yeah. It is. Something always seems to go wrong. Something always seems to happen. I mean, look at, look what had happened here. He, he, it, one of those rare losses, one of three in his career from two sets to love up against yeah. Stefano Sispitas in the, uh, in the quarter for who would have thought, seen that one coming and he was playing so well up until then. So, so you're let, right.
1: Yeah. So let me ask you then, speaking of CC Pons, Paz, I, I think, I think Rafa gets another French open for sure. So does CeCe Potts, could his first major come at Wimbledon, his first major title?
2: It's possible. Yeah, I mean, I certainly make him a strong contender there because of the way he attacks. His, yeah. his, he's, he, his transition game is so good, and he volleys so well, and he has a good game for grass. Yeah. yeah. Could, it, on the other hand, we've seen him in, this, in the semis of the Australian a couple of times, and we saw him in the semis of Roland Garros last year. So he's the kind of guy that could strike almost anywhere.
1: Yeah. I'm still liking Rafa at the French. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I
2: agree. Bold call. call.
0: Um, Listen, we talked about, you know, you playing with Johnny Mack, 1977. We talked about some current players right now. I want to go back to how you got to where you are today because your story is not something that – uh, will be in any textbook and recommended by professors by this is the way you go about being the next Mary Carrillo. So if you would be so kind enough to share your unconventional journey, that would be uh, that would be uh, special.
1: Uh, if you're talking about how I ended up talking about tennis on TV and yes. other sports. Yeah, I did not go to college. Um, I did not study journalism. It's funny because it, back in the day, I, I would get letters from journalism students, communications majors, English majors at at colleges, and they'd say, "Ah, I'm I'm majoring in communication. I'm minoring in English. I work for the radio show. But tennis is my favorite sport. How do I get your job? And I would say, all right, first win Wimbledon. Then (laughs) (laughs) such a a Weisenheimer response, I would call him on the phone and talk to him about it. But yes, my I was, I was very, very uh, fortunate. Um, as a player, I didn't win much, but uh, Virginia Slims and then Avon, the, the other title sponsor of women's tennis, they would bring me in after losses and I would explain how hilariously I had lost and why, and why the person who had just thrown me down on a flight of stairs beat me so easily and what was so good about them. And even when, in my playing days, David, I was writing articles Uh, There used to be a WTA newsletter that I would submit stuff to. And I, you know, I was doing that kind of stuff. I'd always enjoyed uh, writing. I'd always enjoyed, you know, but eh, it's not like I grew up thinking that. Oh, and when I retire, I'm going to be on TV like that never occurred to me. And there weren't that many women calling sports, frankly. Uh, I've been doing this now for more than 40 years, Uh, 40 years ago, if I was you know, working for USA Network or PBS or wherever the hell I was getting work, Madison Square I was normally the only woman there, you know, more often than not, it was guys, it was just a bunch of guys. So that I was lucky enough that somebody once heard me one night call a match at Madison Square Garden, just out of the stands, you know, and again, USA Network started calling, it started covering women's tennis from women's tennis. I went from men's tennis, from men's tennis, I went to other sports, yes, there's nothing textbook about, about what I did. This is not a roadmap for, (laughs) not a roadmap for anybody. And, and also now these days, not just in tennis, but in so many sports, you have to be a champion, you know, you have to, or you have to have a big brand. And I wasn't either. So, um, I don't know. I don't know if somebody like me could, could make their way through again. This was early days and, uh, and again a lot of it was just the circumstances and the fact that i, I kept raising my hand yeah yeah i
0: think if i think the lesson to be learned in in any in any industry is you know you never know when you might get an opportunity and when you do get that opportunity you know be prepared and run for it because you never never know if you'll get that opportunity again and you know That's how right. how whatever the reason was that you got an opportunity you took it you took advantage of it you're obviously extremely um, accomplished at what you do. And, and, and yeah, it may not be in a textbook, but again, the lesson is if you get an opportunity, go and do your very best work and run with it.
1: And the other, I think the other lesson, or at least the one I, I espouse, I believe in is, uh, especially for women you know, who, who want to get into this kind of business and want to do this kind of work, you've got to send the elevator back down, you know? You've got to, you've got to make it so that other women have a chance there's more diversity, you know, there's more gender equity. You know, you, know, you want them to, I, I, I genuinely believe that women sportscasters and women sports writers, they look out for each other and they mentor each other and they want, they want to change the chemistry of a room. They want more, you know, Billie Jean King used to always say that to me, you know, you have to be in the room. You have to, that's how, that's how things change, you know? Um, she also said something really smart to me I think I was still playing I think I had just I think I just lost a a match and and Billy she's known for a lot of different sayings but the one that I've always held close to is when she said I I had lost a match and she said it's not failure it's feedback how cool is that yeah how cool is that Steve
2: that's terrific line yeah isn't that
1: nice I wish it were more popular because I I tell that my kids grew up listening to me say that. And the, I say that all the time, you know, get, well, okay. What did, what did we learn here? What are we walking off this court knowing? What are we walking out of this booth knowing about ourselves? Right. Well,
0: and, There's the saying you either, you either win or you learn, right? You never I lose. You're a this, I don't
1: know. I lost a lot. When I, <laughs> when I think back <laughs> on my pointy headed career, I really remember a lot of losses, <laughs> but, but I I just, I love the the sensibility of that. Don't you?
2: No, I do. Well, Mary, was there a turning point? You look back on, at some point in the 80s where you reached a certain level of comfort that this is where I belong and this is going to work out and I know where I'm headed here or did you never have that feel?
1: I, I don't. You mean in the booth? Like like covering the booth. sports? The um, booth. I think I was always kind of, frankly, kind of comfortable in the booth um, and I, I was lucky I don't remember. I don't know how much you remember that you and I were in the booth with Bud Collins for a couple of years. Well, Madison Square Garden Network. I mean, I Bud made it easy for us, didn't he?
2: He sure did. And I have to tell you a quick story, David. One one night we we I threw in some kind of a funny stat in the middle of the broadcast, (laughs) which I love doing something a little obscure. And Mary turned to me and she said, I've heard you say a lot of demented things. That's the most demented of all. so you and kept I,
1: both and i stand by it
2: <laughs> <laughs> no you know, it was yeah a lot, that was a great joy for me uh, being with you and bud in the booth. it was a lot of fun calling that those championships in the garden couldn't have been more fun
1: i and and it was again you know bud was doing bud was a play by play guy so bud was doing all the carpentry getting us on and off the air in and out of commercials he had big energy, big enthusiasm. So obviously you want to stay up to that. And here you were so knowing, so aware of the moment and the numbers. And so, so I was just, I was in the middle of this sandwich thinking this is, this is how it should be. And I've, <laughs> over the years, I've gotten to work with a lot of people that make me more comfortable. But I, th- I don't know that I was ever that nervous because my, I, uh, up in the booth, if, if you feel like you've done your homework, you know, you, you know your stuff, and you feel prepared and you're sitting next to somebody that you like or admire or, you know, respect. I don't know. It just, it just feels comfortable S- switching, going on to other sports. I mean, there was a, a level of comfort I had to earn big time, you know, just so I felt like I belonged for those kind of things. But I, I don't know. I just, I, I know you, you both know, I come from a long line of storytellers in the Carrillo family and uh, <laughs> We all like spinning a tail, you know. So, I think I, I, you kind of feel like if you're sitting around the table full of carillos, you kind of feel like you got to hold up your end of the conversation, you know.
2: <laughs> your, mother, your mother, your mother was probably the champion. Of, of I, champion in the right.
1: Steve, the last time you spoke to my mother, she's still on that same sentence. <laughs> she's, she's, and another thing, Steve. you
2: you, you haven't seen her for 20 years it doesn't matter yes david you talk you talk about a proud parent david i i I mean when when i used to hang around mary's mother in the garden in different places when mary was working she she didn't brag but she was so proud that's great (laughs) she got kick out of it probably as as any parent
0: as any parent should be that's so so great Um, i want to just throw out a couple things and i'll ask both of you these questions and just kind of first things that come to your mind um, about a few topics. Um, some current, some not so current. I'm just eager, you know, with both of you on this right now, i just really eager to hear your thoughts on this. So with that, I'm just going to throw out there. We'll start with Steve. Um, Fed and Serena, do either did either win another slam?
2: It's funny because Mary was alluding to it a little bit earlier with Federer. I, I think it's slim. I think really what it comes down to for Fedor in my mind is a one last serious bid at Wimbledon this year. He's going to turn 40 later in the summer. He has the memories of the two match points against Novak in the 2019 final, coming back to a place he's always loved. If it's going to happen, I think it happens there or or else probably nowhere. So I think his chances are somewhat slim, but maybe he pulls it off there under the right circumstances with Novak losing to somebody else. I think he needs a few breaks there. Mm. So odds, against but I don't rule it out. Serena I give a slightly better chance because you look at her recent run in the majors and the four finals in 2018 yeah. 2019 at Wimbledon and the Open combined. Mm-hmm. Then these last two majors, the semis of the Open, the semis of the Australian. She's in the thick of things. I uh, it's still I still say odds slightly against but I give her a better chance than Roger. What about you Mary?
1: Um I think Roger has a chance to win the Olympics this year because it's hard courts two out of three sets. He's going to be huge in Japan because he's got that Japanese clothing contract. they are going to be posters of Roger and Naomi Osaka. I get to go to Tokyo. I get to cover my, what will be my 15th Olympics. Wow. I think they're both going to be, I I'm, I'm so glad that I'll be there because it'll probably be the last Olympics for a bunch of them for Rafa and Roger Serena Venus. If she gets into the dubs, I mean, it's going to be a big sporting event. So I think, I, I, I would agree with Steve that Serena might have a better chance. But again, they, they both have played so little for so long.
0: Right. And that's, right. A,
1: that's an issue. And I, and I think what it comes down to, when you see Roger playing well, when you see Serena playing well, and then the obverse of that, it's if you let either one of them, yeah, it, if you let them hit three shots, they're in. You know, they're in the mix. If you make them hit three shots, maybe you got a chance to get them. You know, there's a, I think that's a very fine and important distinction. If they come out on the court playing their points on their terms, you know, dictating early, then I think they both, they both have a shot. But I, I would agree that Serena's got a slightly better chance of getting to 24 than Roger does at 21.
2: Right,
0: right. I wouldn't well, uh, mind seeing
1: either one, by the way, guys.
0: Oh yeah. yeah. I
1: wouldn't mind seeing either one. A hundred
0: percent. A hundred percent. I'll stay with you, Mary. Uh, first thing that comes to mind, Coco Golf. <laughs>
1: very, very talented. Very, very talented. Um, yeah, with that, I mean, she, uh, she announced herself, declared herself so early and so, uh, Importantly, at Wimbledon a couple of years ago, getting to the fourth round, beating Venus on the way. Sure, surely there are parts of her game that she needs to to shore up. And she's a kid. She's a kid. I hope she doesn't. Uh, I hope she doesn't fall under the weight of extreme pressure. Too many sponsors. Too many a- agents yanking her around. Too too many places. I don't think so. She seems very pulled together. And I think all agents and parents have learned the lessons of of past tragedies in women's tennis right uh uh, jennifer capriati springs to mind i mean that kid was so good so young she was so hungry full of ambition but she was like by the second year on the tour she had traveled too much she had played too many exos she was you know she had a you know this is a she's 14 years old and she's got a an oil of olay contract you know at a time when all skin breaks out, you know, (laughs) she's, she's, she's got, she's got that kind of stuff to worry about. I think Coco, I, huge, huge upside and very blue skies for that kid. I also like how, how willing she is to be an activist at such a young age. I mean, Coco stepped up last summer, Black Lives Matter, Naomi Osaka stepped up, Serena Venus, you know, and again, I know we've heard them talk about their religion and, Jehovah's Witnesses—they don't get political and all that—but boy, those two, those two young ladies really stepped up in, in important ways, and I was very admiring of that.
2: Yeah, Steve, how big,
1: how blue are the skies for Coco?
2: Well, I, I, I keep thinking two or three years. When I mean, you alluded to it, but I mean, having been in the sixteens of Wimbledon, having beaten Naomi in the Australian Open a year ago, she's had some good experiences already. Thirty-six. Yeah already at 17. I see her really coming to the forefront at 20 and 21. I mean, I think she'll get a lot better this year, top 20 end of the year, maybe break into the top 10 next year. But then I think as we're really looking at, say, two, three years from now, I I see her starting down the road of winning some majors. I just think she has that mentality. And I think now and then, Mary, maybe shore up the forehand a little bit it tends to get go awry right now at time and the serve and the The serve the double faults exactly but i think that's going to change and uh and i i see her really making a a move at 2021 that's going to be exhilarating for a lot of fans
1: i i I use an expression guys uh maybe you've heard it because i i I, there are some players that just they have fangs you know (laughs) and there are some players who don't (laughs) And, and I, I, I don't think you can grow them if you don't already have them. I don't think you can teach fangs. Not, I got it in my head that, that Coco Gauff has
0: fangs. Steve, yeah. I'll, I'll start uh, this one with you, and then we'll go to Mary. Um, sure. Favorite tournament to cover? Steve, obviously, as a writer, and Mary as a commentator. Steve, why don't you start out on
2: this one? Uh, I've, it's, it's always been Wimbledon for me, maybe because I fell in love with it as a 12-year-old, about to turn 13, going out there in 1965 as a fan, and then eventually, having not missed it since 77, covering it. And I, I just feel like the eyes of the world are on it. There's mm-hmm. just, you, you you can't do justice to it with words, but it, it is so meticulously run. Yes. And the pageantry, the whole experience to me exceeds any other major. So that one is an easy choice for me, Wimbledon.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty good choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty, and, and there are events that whose physical, the The physicality of it, like Wimbledon, when you're there, it feels different from any any other tournament. Uh, The Masters in golf, uh, the Kentucky Derby, there are some places that are made even more special because of the actual physical space where something is held. So I happen to love Wimbledon uh, because on and off, well, pretty much for the last 20 years, I have been staying, uh, I rent a flat at Wimbledon every year with Billie Jean King and her partner, Alana Claus. So those two weeks spent with those two uh, is just one of the best. I I look forward to it every year. And Billie was on a run there uh, until the pandemic last year. She hadn't missed she had not missed Wimbledon since she was a seventeen-year-old and played it there for the first time.
2: Barry, my guess, my guess is there's a lot of conversation and very little sleep. Over that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Poor Alana, Steve, you're so right. She <laughs> she sees us. We wind each other up, and and <laughs> Billy's like she's flailing her arms, and she's at, and 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 yes, there's a it gets it is the best kind of exhaustion you can have is. A, rooming at Wimbledon with Billy and Alana. I also think India Wells is a remarkable event. And and the major I've really come to love is Melbourne, Um, just because it's 10 minutes. It's a 10 minute walk from the middle of Melbourne down to the courts. It's so civilized, right? And it's relaxed. And the players are coming into the sun. A lot of them been spending winter somewhere and they're they're coming off their training block and they're kind of happy to see the press, you know, until we start asking stupid questions. <laughs> I that <laughs> Melbourne has become a huge favorite of
2: mine. Yeah. I love it as well. I do. Yeah. That would come second to Wimbledon for me, yeah. but it is thoroughly relaxed. And yeah. Despite the magnitude of the event, it's, it does, that does set it apart from all the other majors. Absolutely.
0: Well, I'll start with Mary with this one. Will Novak at the end of the day be the one with the most with the most slams? Yes, that's Steve? it.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, I agree. I agree. It's funny. I just wrote a piece about this a, a couple of weeks ago, and I I tried to map it out, and I see Rafa okay. winning two more French, as I was saying earlier. I see, and but I honestly don't think, despite Mary's valid point that Rafa could win another Australian or could win another U.S. Open. I'm not convinced it's going to happen. I see the two more French is very likely, but Novak, I mean, he, he, I, I think he's going to win at least one or two more Wimbledon's. He's, he's never done himself justice. Three U.S. Opens for Djokovic, considering his hard court prowess, makes no sense. Lost five finals there. He's due for you know. So I just and then Australia, where he's nine and zero in the finals. So I, you you know, he could win anywhere, and even Roland Garros, especially if Rafa. Mm who got hurt or lost to somebody else. Novak oh. is, is a great clay court player in his own right. So in the end, I think he will nose by Nadal, maybe by one or two majors, but he'll have the most when all is said and done. I agree with Mary on that. To, to I also, add to
0: that point, Mary, Steve and I talked about this previously. Novak um, missed out one that was in his control and one was not in his control. Novak could have two more at this point because Wimbledon didn't happen in 2020. And we all know what happened in the U S open. If that doesn't happen, there's no reason to think that he would not have won the 2020 U S open. So to say that he's still going to have the most with an opportunity of not having the two that I just referred to is pretty incredible.
1: I also think David and Steve, that it means more to Novak than the other two guys. I genuinely feel that way when Rafa says he's, he doesn't, he, that's the major count is not necessarily on his mind. I believe him. I, I think Rafa is, I've grown to appreciate and respect his words as much as his tennis these days. Cause I, I think he has a very good sensibility, a very balanced look at the whole world. Uh, and Roger of course is older than these two guys. So I don't think he has the same chance as Novak. We have all seen the, not only how magnificent a player he is, but the defiance that gives him so much fuel I think it will be at a time when he's playing against two guys or who are beloved and he is not necessarily that in a lot of people's minds I really happen to like the guy myself um I think that he ends up on top of everybody in the history of tennis means more to him and will propel him more than than I think it it, it will Rafa or Roger yeah. do you, do you I, sense that about him or no?
2: No, definitely, definitely. The defiance is the right word. But I also, Mary, I think it's funny. We've talked about him before. I think you and I see Djokovic in a very similar light. And I, I also like him. I also, yeah. think, and I interviewed him for the Sampras book and he could not have been more accommodating or generous in the way he spoke. And I, I, I I've always felt a certain sorrow that he he has to be compared to two giants yes uh, uh in the public mind like rafa mm-hmm. and roger never mind the achievers but just those people the two of them being so immensely popular it's been hard on Djokovic. Yes. he deserves better, he deserves better in my mind but as far as his targeting the record i agree it's more of a singular obsession to him just like the weeks at number one yes. breaking rogers weeks at number one and i think then he'll also start going after the trying to get the seven years. When we get later to the, the, later into this campaign, he'll want to finish the year up number one. So it could be, it, he's definitely, uh, the goals are very targeted.
1: Absolutely right. He also speaks better English than any other tennis player, man or woman. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm including <laughs> Americans and Brits. <laughs> he articulates himself so well. And a, a quick question from you, Steve, you pick out one thing that Novak said about Pete for your book, one thing that meant the most to you, spoke the loudest to what Novak thinks about Sampras?
2: Oh, I think it was uh, just the way he, he, his reverence for for watching. I just loved him reflecting on the, watching Pete win Wimbledon in 93 and Novak is six years old. Yeah, and I, I
1: love that story.
2: And the other story I love was his father deliberately rooting for uh, Agassi and Courier to see sort of goading Novak. <laughs> Novak's favorite and Novak standing by Pete. But no, it wasn't so. Sort of one comment. It was the range of comments and no. the and genuine, the genuine uh, respect that he had for Sampras. I, yes. I, I love that. I did too. because oddly, I think they're 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 more similar than many people may realize. Wow. Different different dispositions, totally yes. different dispositions and temperaments. But there are there are other similarities in the way they they look at things.
1: In terms of ambition, you mean?
2: Yes. Yes. Definitely. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: All right. Last two. Uh, we kind of referred to them a little bit, but uh, again, I'll just throw it out there. And you you say first thing that comes to mind, we'll start with Steve with this one, Chrissy and Martina.
2: <laughs> well, the greatest rivalry in the history of sports in my mind, you know, exceeds to say a Yale Harvard or Alley and Frazier. And, and, and then in tennis, we've had some very special ones with Labor and Rosewall and the current big trio in Sampras and Agassi, but I, I don't think there's anything like this, you know, from 73 to 88 and playing in the majors and 14 finals and just the great contrast and styles and the way they made each other better players. That's right. Sometimes that's a cliche, right, Mary? Sometimes you hear top players saying that and I don't necessarily think they believe it, but these two did yeah. because over the course of their careers, you know, Chrissy got more comfortable coming forward and improved her volley. Martina's ground game, improved too they they really stretched each other to to the hill and 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 the rivalry was was just like no other one
1: like no other and the friendship that somehow came out of that locker room as well this the respect level and i mean these are two women who more than any two uh, tennis players ever they made each other cry (laughs) more than any other two players and, and
2: over and Mary, they overcame some tough circumstances. You remember in the middle of their career when Nancy Lieberman was such mm-hmm. a great help to Martina professionally, but she wanted Martina to, to uh, pretty much hate Chrissy you know yeah. it was it, but they, they, they moved past that. Yeah. It, it did not linger in, in any way and because they had too much respect for each other. And I think the way that, that the friendship endured as well as the rivalry was just remarkable.
1: Well, let me ask you this, because I totally agree with what you're saying about how they made each other better. Does that mean that Serena Williams, who really hasn't, to my mind, had a rival since Justine Enna, okay? Yeah. How much better could Serena have been if her sister or somebody else all these years was pushing her on a regular basis to greater heights? I think about that all the time.
2: Great question and I think you're so right to single out Justine and I'm just so sorry that Justine didn't hang around a little no. longer. They could no. have had epic clashes and mm-hmm. and I think Serena had great respect for Justine as a player I and mean, they weren't close personally but she really respected the player. Yes. She needed that. I I, I will never know but I suspect it could have driven Serena to, to even greater heights.
1: Oh, and and stylistically again the differences between Chrissy and Martina between Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi, Bork, McEnroe, the, the stylistic matchups count for a hell of a lot too. So yeah, David, they're number one on my list as well.
0: And we will finish and you just mentioned them. Uh, two guys that are near and dear to all of our hearts. Um, the guy was one of my idols growing up. I, I had great respect for Pete. I've said this to Steve before but my idol growing up was Andre Um, Why? but I was not one of those I was not one of those oh I loved Andre I hate Pete and and Steve and I have talked about this before I had great great respect for for Pete just as a fan growing up I was a slight Andre lean um I want to throw it out to both of you we'll start Mary uh Andre and Pete oh well let me ask you first why were you an Andre guy um just I think his personality obviously right Pete was more reserved Andre was more uh, you know you're growing up I'm I'm 5 years younger than Andre so when Andre's making his move at 17 18 years old I'm 12 13 years old yeah. um and every, so many people looked up to him and and um it was a great rivalry to watch um yes. Pete got the better of Andre in the most important matches that said they played so many uh, great great matches um but to me, uh, again, it wasn't, uh, There, there's so many, you like one, and you even see it with the Roger, Rafa, and Novak, either like one or two of them and you hate the yeah. third. That was not the case. No, nah, no,
1: nah, you couldn't do that with, with Andre or Pete. I, I lean more Pete, but I, I, let me tell you something. As a broadcaster, there are some players who bounced the ratings off the charts when they walked onto the court. Pete Sampras did not do that. Andre Agassi did it every time. Serena Williams does it. I mean, there are some players, Jimmy Connors, good God, especially in New York at the U.S. Open. Um, Andre was the show. Andre was, you know, the guy no matter who he was playing against, my eyes seemed to take me more to his side of the court than the other. It was... Mary,
0: Mary, says, share a personal story, I had an early high school graduation present from my parents and we drove up from Chicago to Minnesota, the 1992 U.S. Davis Cup semis where U.S. played Sweden in the second sure. Stefan Eberg. Um, we had the dream team. Jim Currier played singles with Andre, and then we had Johnny Mac and Peter doubles. until And to, to your point, Jim played the first match, and it was, you know, Friday afternoon, late afternoon, early evening. The energy's just not there. Jim guts out, five-set victory. Then Andre comes in the arena, and it's like you said, <laughs> just the energy. It's like... Yeah. It was unbelievable. You feel like as a fan, you could run through a wall for that guy. <laughs> um, it was just the type of energy that, that he brought into a stadium, you know, night mm-hmm. in and night out, so. Um,
1: and, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story. John McEnroe, you know, the longtime Nike guy. And then Andre, of course, became a longtime Nike guy. But Andre was a kid. He was, I guess he was still a teenager. When Nike came to John and said, we want you to wear these. And John wore these shorts, and he didn't like them because they showed his sweat too much. He he never liked he never liked any any uh, outfits that that showed how hard he was working, you know. So he said, "I'm I'm not wearing these." So Nike handed those denim shorts to Andre Agassi.
0: <laughs> that worked out okay. That worked out okay.
2: <laughs> that worked out okay. Steve, did you know that story? Oh, I didn't know. It's a great story, <laughs> and it, and it couldn't be more fitting. I mean, they made more sense for Andre. That's right. That's exactly right. When you,
0: when you did your book and uh, Pete, Steve, we're talking about Pete, when you wrote your book with Pete, you know, they're they're obviously Andre had to come up time and time and time again, you know, there's certain things, you know, we know they had their one issue in that exhibition at Indian Wells, but outside of that, I mean, there is a mutual respect for, for one another.
2: Oh, absolutely. I I mean, I think that that was there throughout their careers. And they were very, they were very, they had a very different approach to life and to the game. And, and I I think Andre did care more about what Mary was talking about. He he liked being the center of attention. I don't say that critically. That's fine. He was comfortable in the spotlight. He liked that. He liked that aspect of the game. Pete was more businesslike and it was all about winning and, and handling himself in a certain fashion and, and, Pulling off the, the the most important titles, so I, I I think that there was always that contrast, it always was there, and they they and but the respect was always there too. And you're right, the incident with the you know in Indian Wells was was unfortunate. It was long after their careers yeah. were over, but during their careers, that the respect was shining through at all times, even if they weren't close. This was not to Navratilova. No. But on the other hand, it, it, it they, they they understood each other on, on a certain level and appreciated each other's talents and capability.
1: I think it was from an old I end with this uh, I think it was a, from a, a Sally Jenkins article in Sports Illustrated many years ago when they were at the they were both at the height of their powers and the, and the the height of their rivalry um, I think I think it was Pete who said it of Andre, but I'm sure they both agreed. I think Pete said you know if if we had to live one night as the other, we'd kill you. We'd die. Like, <laughs> like, just the thought of Pete spending a night as Andre or Andre spending a night as Pete. like
2: no, and, Impossible. <laughs>
0: and that's what made the rivalry so great. Um, Correct. Mary, Mary and Steve, for, for me to share this conversation with, with, with two Hall of Famers, truly, truly a privilege. When I rewatched the, the video, I don't think I ever stopped smiling in the <laughs> almost 50-something minutes that we did truly a privilege for me. Thank you both for for sharing your experiences um, with me tonight. And uh, can't wait to, to share this with the listeners.
1: David, I don't think I stopped smiling either. It's, and <laughs> it's a pleasure talking to you. And I, I love talking to Steve Flink. He's my man. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much.
2: Mary, thanks a lot. I enjoyed it immensely.